0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City jazz trumpeter Trent Austin. This celebrated trumpet artist, educator, clinician, and entrepreneur is a true renaissance man. For decades, he has been at it with brilliant performances and recordings in both the jazz and classical music worlds. This prodigy has been at it for decades and was hugely swayed by jazz same. Clark Terry. He's also a business owner and has been in Kansas City for about three years now. Over the years, he's graced the stage with the likes of Tony Bennett, Natalie Cole, Joe Williams, Clark Terry, Bob Brookmeyer, Maria Schneider, Peter Erskine, Arturo Sandoval, Kenny Werner, and so many others. His groove, path, and history in jazz is astounding. Enjoy the story of a Kansas City treasure. It's been a long time coming. The first time I caught up
1: with you was last year at One of the uh, outdoor concerts hosted by Jackie Myers, again the other night with Jim, so it's great to talk to you. Thanks for taking a minute out. Total pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. So, as we were kind of touching on before we were recording, you know, obviously the elephant in the room has been COVID. It's really put the brakes on everybody and everything. Things are starting to wake up. So kind of give me an idea before we go into what you're doing and how things are opening up. How did you survive the whole COVID shutdown? How did you find out that everything was closing down and and the world was going to be altered? I might want to preface this by saying that performing for me is not necessarily a profession anymore. I, I did perform and tour professionally for... Probably 20 years, but then I opened my own business, which also got crushed by COVID, of course, like at most other businesses. Um, and uh, like everybody else, it's sort of just, uh, I was doing trade shows, and I remember going to the NAMM show in January, and there were some murmurs about, hey, this uh, there's something going on in Asia. Yeah, okay. And then a few weeks later, we had the TMA show, Texas Music Educators show. Of course, everything's big because it's Texas. You know, we started hearing about people in San Antonio, first confirmed case of COVID in San Antonio. So it was like, okay, this is, uh, something is going on here. Meanwhile, I have so many dear friends and musicians and musical colleagues in, uh, who live in New York and they're all like, uh, this is bad. So, you know, it was March 23rd, I think when, uh, Mayor Lucas, uh, sort of imposed the shutdown. And yeah. I know that because it was like the day before my birthday. But happy birthday, you know. Stay home for a while. And and everybody yeah. dreams of I think it, you know when we are all working, everybody dreams of the, you know, hey, we're going to go home and and this will be great, you know. And that lasted maybe 3 or 4 days and then it was like, okay, I I like to get out of my house now. It sure be the alternative. I I did lose a family member uh indirectly to COVID. Uh couldn't get into the hospital because of shut down and anyways uh so yeah we've all been through tremendous loss and and of course financially being a musician this uh, past year has been brutal for so many of my friends i again i was fortunate because i have my own business even though we took a hit uh it's still you know it wasn't it was predictable so i could uh you know cash into the emergency fund and and uh survive It is encouraging to finally be playing again. I think I saw you last week with uh, Jim's uh, trio out in OP. That was just so wonderful to play music with a band again. And this is like how much we took that for granted, how much we took hugs and high fives and, you know, smiles even, you know, hard to smile through a mask. Uh, It's been a ride, man. And it's good to see everything opening up. And speaking of... Yes, sir. Um... You are starting to play. So talk to me a little bit about your itinerary right now, what you're hoping as things continue to open up and get a little better. Yeah, I think, you know, I think people see the trumpet and they think of it as being like a garden hose as a spreading machine of, of germs. But in all actuality, it's actually quite contained because um, we do have this thing called the condensation valve or spit. Um, so now that people understand that, you it's a fairly safe instrument to be around. Maybe people musically might say differently, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm starting to play a little bit more. Like, for instance, this Friday, I will be with Jackie at uh, Corvino, and I we played at the French Market last week. So that's this Friday's Corvino. I don't do a lot, lot of playing. I'd hope to do a little bit more. Uh, obviously, my professional world ties me up quite significantly. Uh but I do know that we're doing with uh, Clint Ashlock and Daniel Dismore and I think Stan Kessler, we're doing a trumpet summit at the Blue Room on August seventh. That's uh I think Saturday mm-hmm. evening. And after that I know I'm playing with my buddy Brad Gregory's awesome sex at the Westport Coffee House on August fifteenth. So I, I these are just co- Off the top of my head i might have a few more in the works um there's other things in the works as well you know i've only been in kansas city for three years you know one of those years was taken from a pandemic so it's just establishing you know working professional relationships with other musicians is taking a little bit more time because you you can't jam with people you can't hang out with people you can't get the vibe of how other people like or maybe do not like the way you play But I think that's starting to to change. So you have your own business, which is a lion's share of what you do. Talk to me a little bit about your business, when it began, and kind of what you do. I have always been a gearhead, and I've always been fascinated. In high school, I dropped my mouthpiece, and my dad and I made a mouthpiece on a metal lathe in his garage. So I sort of tabled that for many years until I worked. I'm a performing artist with a few uh, companies, but one of the companies was like, well, you're really good at selling these instruments for us. You should open your business. And I said, nah. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll give you exclusive rights for three years on our product. And i like, okay, all the code. So my business, which is called Austin Custom Brass, is, is basically, like, if you go to, like, a bike pro shop, like a real high-end, you know, like one of my friend's companies, Elite Cycling, and I think it's would it's like, you know, they have super high-end bikes, it's great service, that's what we do, we are, we are we are mostly online sales, although we do have, you know, again, finally, um, some good walk-in traffic from the Missouri and Kansas uh, contingency, which is great. But basically, we're an online pro shop that caters mostly to trumpet players throughout the world. For instance, I mean, like, we just were selling a horn to Japan today. We sold something this morning to someone in Virginia. Um, Sold another horn to someone in Colorado. I mean, it's, so it, we have a lot of spread, which is, which is really fortunate because I know a, a bunch of my friends during the pandemic, they had you know more of a brick and mortar show up, an experience shop. You have to go and experience. Some of my friends had to close their business or suffered tremendous losses because of the pandemic. So we've been fortunate. We pivoted pretty, pretty efficiently into the pandemic world. So, and the world is so small with all of the tools uh, online via social media and live conferencing. It's never as good as like hanging out and, you know, hanging in the shop and having me make you a cup of coffee while you play trumpet. But we're making do. We're very, very, very fortunate because I have an amazing team. It's a ridiculously good team. And all of the people that work at the shop are fine, fine musicians as well. You know, you might know one of the trumpet players. Uh uh Nate Null works for me. Yeah. Great young trumpet player, trumpet star, I think, in the making for sure. Yeah, he is. He's wonderful, yeah, and he has new material coming out. Um yes. So you've been here for three years as you've mentioned. Let's go back to the beginnings of your life. Where were you born and raised? I grew up I was born in uh Massachusetts but but moved to Maine when I was three years old. So I grew up in central Maine, uh near Bangor, Maine. And yes, I said that correctly. So you can always tell somebody has been to because they'll say Bangor instead of Banga. So, um, <laughs> and uh, uh I was very, very fortunate to be exposed to uh jazz music when I was young. And our high school jazz, we didn't have a football team in my high school. Now they have a football team and the music program isn't as good. I won't go into that any further than that. When I was a freshman at uh my high school, we had four high school jazz bands. We had 10 combos, three vocal jazz cho- choirs. It was kind of ridiculous. I, and I just thought that was normal because when you're young and you're a freshman, impressionable young person, you just thought, well, this is what I do. That, yeah, so it was just like from that, I knew pretty pretty early on that I wanted to to, to have music play a, an absolute vital part of my life. So I grew up in Maine, then went to school in New Hampshire and Boston, and lived mostly in Boston. I lived in Boston for about 20 years. My wife, who works in the government, got an opportunity to um, become the audiovisual archivist at the Truman Library. She grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, but moved to Maine when she was young, and that's how we, you know, started dating. We decided that Kansas City was a pretty, pretty hip town. When I visited, I had played here many years ago. Like, I had played here with Natalie Cole. Oh, I would say maybe mid-90s. Kansas City was a rough town back then. For and, and so I had an impression of Kansas City that completely shifted when I visited in 2017. I visited in 2017, and I was like, I absolutely adore this city. You know, it's hard not to love a city where everybody's nice. It's hard not to yeah. love a city without traffic. It's, and it's really hard not to love the the pace of life, which is... Definitely slower and more relaxed than where I had previously lived, um, Boston or New York. What would you say were musical influences on you early on that really formed and shaped the way that you wanted to approach the instrument? Now I was very, very, very lucky. I had great teachers in, and who were trumpet players. Middle school, who's my middle school band director. I think anybody who's a middle school band director is a hero. I had one of my uh, lesson students a couple days ago me that they're getting a job as a middle school band director and i was like man you're my hero i can't wait to see what you do but am no, he's my hero but i think a sophomore in high school i met clark terry for the first time he was so nice so welcoming so kind to this kid from central maine who said man i i transcribed your solo and i played it for him and then i didn't see him for about a year and a half i got a scholarship to go to unh unh in is University of New Hampshire. Clark got his first honorary doctorate there in like 1976. Clark invited me to go play at his camp. And I said, well, I would love to do it, but I don't really have enough money to do it. I, I can't afford it. So up at the airport this day. He paid for everything. You know, and it's like, this; these are the things that really inspire me and reason Clark Terry is absolutely the greatest, and he's definitely my greatest trumpet hero uh, but he's more than that, he's the greatest person I've ever met. Um, if anybody out there who's listening hasn't watched the documentary On Clark's Life, it's called Keep On Keeping On, you really deserve to enjoy such a heartwarming story. And that was Clark's life throughout his entire life. So Clark was definitely my biggest mentor, and still, every note I play is for Clark there. You know, happy. I, I think one of the things that we do when we get go to music school and we get so obsessed about being great technicians and great musicians is we forget that we're still, our primary role is entertainers. We still have to make sure that when somebody leaves the concert, they're smiling. They have a good time. They feel positive. And I think that's a a vital, vitally important thing that Clark taught me when I was real young. Because here was this virtuosic player who could play absolutely anything. Man, you couldn't help but having a huge grin on your face. So that's always been my mentor. Of course, I've had other mentors. I, you know, I've studied with some really great people. And in Boston, I played with a lot of great musicians. Um, but the Clark is always going to be my number one. Now, what was the movie that they made with Justin Coughlin? That's the one. That's what it's called. Okay. Keep on, keep on keeping on. You know, I, we had a beautiful, like, I, you know, the last time I saw Clark was at his 94th birthday. We, A bunch of us who were either, you know, in Clark's big bands back in the day or some of his students, you know, protégés, whatever you want to call us, we all went to Clark's house and we hung out. While, and Clark was very ill. was blind could barely hear. And we had a big band playing all of Clark's tunes in his living room. And it was so much fun. And he was... He was in great spirits that day. And I remember at 3 o'clock in the morning, because Clark Clark was always a – he would have loved the, the foundation because he would be at that session. Clark was always hanging out late. I remember when I was hanging with him at UNH, it would be 7 o'clock in the morning. And we'd still be up talking and playing trumpet. And I'd be, Clark, I got a class in an hour. He's like, oh, that's cool. I got go to I gotta go to bed. You know, um, but I remember one of the most – my last – great moment with Clark was, you know, just playing for him, and and Justin and I were playing with like, uh, I think it was uh, Greg Gisbert was playing with us, Sylvia, his drummer, in Clark's bedroom. We were just all jamming, and he was singing along and just having a great time. That's the thing. Music is such a powerful, th- powerful thing, and maybe one of the best things that will come out of this pandemic, Kansas City's always, at least what I've seen, has been a great town of supporting live music. And honestly, it's, I think it's better than the other cities I've lived in. But I think now, post-pandemic, it's even more powerful because people realize we we didn't have that experience. You know, yeah, maybe you had it like when you came to Jackie's gig dielectric, you know, like dielectric engineering or, you know, we saw things on YouTube or Facebook Live. But going to a live concert, going to Corvino, having their burger, and, you know, and just, like, sitting down and listening to great groups or going to the Green Lady or going to the Dolphin or going to the Blue Room. It's, the Kansas City, is, it's, they're spoiled. There's a tremendous amount of um, musical uh, venues to play and go in and support, almost to the point where it's yeah. hard to pick and choose where you go every day. It's a good problem to have, for sure. So what was the first live jazz show you ever saw that blew you blew you away, that made you think, man, that's, that's it? April 24th, 1989, Uh, and you you say, this is the day I thought I I wanted to be a trumpet player because I actually got to play. Uh, Maynard Ferguson played a concert at my high school with his high voltage group. It was like, he didn't have a big band at the time, um, but he had a small, like, it was almost like a fusion group. And actually, they put some really good stuff out that I've now listened to later on, you know. Of course, Maynard, most trumpet players idolize Maynard. And arguably early Maynard Ferguson's the best best brass playing you'll ever hear and never can be replicated. But, you know, it was, it was kind of cheesy back then. But at the end of the night, the big band got to play Rocky. So it was a high school band. Fourth trumpet player got sick. And so I got to sit in and play fourth trumpet player on Rocky. So that was the day I knew I wanted to be a professional musician. So, but yeah, that wow. was my first kind of first concert. And I still, I remember seeing Winton Up in University, Maine. Yeah, I grew up in a very rural area, Um, so there wasn't a lot of access to concerts in a year-long basis. But I did go to this great, great summer program, which I think is still around, called the Maine Jazz Camp. The Maine Jazz Camp had world-class faculty members. My first two real trumpet teachers, outside of my middle school band director, were Bob and Chuck Finley. Chuck Finley is probably the most recorded trumpet player in history on any pop album in the 70s or 80s. And Bob Sinley was the second trumpet player with Herb Alpert's group. So, and also on thousands of movies and stuff, both really high, I mean, world-class trumpet players, but they liked to vacation in Maine. So they went and they taught at this camp and they hung out. And so it was like, that was my experience. And I was just like, still very, very fortunate. You know, it's amazing. I, I really, I, I truly believe this more and more. And I actually put it on my show this week. Kinda of blue opened up millions of doors to every possible mind that wanted to get involved with jazz. Like it has to be one of the most seminal recordings of all time, the baptismal in jazz. I think Maynard Ferguson for working musicians is one of the most prolific performers that turned the light bulb on for a lot of people. I I genuinely believe that. I have asked this question a lot and I I can't believe how many people say Maynard. He has to be one of the most active musicians yes. ever. Well, and, and the thing that like, Clark told me, like, Clark had a, you know, Clark originally, it was a choice between him and Doc Severinsen for the Tonight Show band to be the leader. Yeah. They didn't choose, they didn't choose Clark because he was black. Yeah. Uh, and, and to this day, Doc, and I'm friends with Doc as well, it's just the, the trumpet world is very small, but um, Doc says he idolizes Clark and he respects Clark. He would always have Clark guest solo on the Tonight Show when Clark was in town because he respects Clark so much, and we kind of know that Clark should have got the gig. Clark was the first African-American trumpet player in a studio orchestra. He didn't miss a note for eight years, he told me. But but because he was black, he didn't get the gig. But because of that, he ended up turning to education, and there was a point in Clark's life where he would do 300 days a year on the road. And Maynard was the same. You know, this advent of the Stan Kenton sort of big band, stage band thing, and then with Maynard, Maynard was out there touring all the time. And he had popularity because he crossed over. Some people will say, okay, it's kind of cheesy. and Yeah, I mean, he played the Battlestar Galactica theme, but it's still Maynard. It's still soul pouring out of his horn. No matter what he's playing, you know, Duke Ellington said it perfectly. There's two types of music in the world, good and the other kind. Now, you don't have to call it bad. You just say it's the other kind. But those guys proliferated the music and, and also think about the stage presence that, you know, that someone like Maynard had, he just completely captivating, again, entertainer. So I think a lot of us hardcore improvisational musicians have to understand we still need to entertain. We still need to make sure that people connect with them more than just, oh, wow, that, that person's a great player it's more like that person is so much fun to play and enjoy and listen with. You know, I want I want people that's my end goal in my in what I do as a performer. So I want everybody to leave with a smile right on that's beautiful. So, you know, the one thing about you is you have been around a lot of brass. I mean, just being taught by the the saint Terry, and all of these things You know, you've been around, like you said, Natalie Cole, Tony Bennett, Mm -hmm. um, Bob Brookmeyer, um, Peter Erskine, Hal Galper, Dick Oates. So let me ask you this. You know, you're in a position with all these younger cats. Like when I was watching you play, you are in a position by either osmosis or direct talking to mentor and be an educator with your experience. What did these older legends and luminaries and cats that were really at the top of their game teach you as whether it was advertently or inadvertently about not only being a musician about but about being a person that has helped you mm. teach the younger people around you well i mean i taught college for nine years before i opened my business so i was very and i have i still teach and i have a passion for teaching but it's different i the only teaching i do nowadays besides my you know small group of very dedicated students um is where I'll go to a like I'll go to a university and get solo with their big band, or I'll go to a high school, or, or even better, go to a middle school and work with very impressionable young uh future stars of music. Um, one thing, I and mean, Clark Terry did it perfect. He never put anybody down when he was working with them. It was never demeaning. It was never. It was always like, hey, you know, that's cool. Try it this way. Or hey, really listen and see what I'm Even with the person that will never understand the base concept of swing, for instance, he had this ability to transcend, you know, maybe an overtly negative situation and just really just just share love and love for the music and love for proliferating the language, which is improvising. Um, so that's maybe the big thing. I mean, I've had other aggressive teachers who have set out straight. I mean, I'm very fortunate to study with Hal Crook. Hal Crook is one of the greatest musical minds I've ever met. One of, if not maybe the greatest musical mind I've ever met. And he was—he's a kid. Yeah, he's no older than me. I hope he doesn't hear this because he'll bash me at that. But he's—he's um, um, he's a guy that grew up in a rough, tough neighborhood in Providence, and he—he's and just like great shooter. Know, no BS. So sometimes yeah. I, I this is a little bit like I, I always say that I have an East Coast attitude when I need it, and sometimes you have to push that. You know, sometimes there's there's you have to read. It's about reading a relationship and understanding. Like you know, for instance, on a gig, um, you know, especially if you're a side person, this is a, something that's very hard for a lot of younger musicians to comprehend. The side person's job on on a performance really is to just to make sure that the leader is incredibly comfortable you don't really it's not your gig it's not your gig so if you're playing as a side man or woman leader, understand that it's not your time to shine you could still play you and be you but you can't be the full you <laughs> i don't think you know like I, I don't know if that makes sense but Yeah, there's there's a lot of things that I think, unfortunately, don't get taught. Part of that is something like this, is this feeling of, like, hey, how should you act on a gig? You know, like, what do you need to do? Like, what are some of the base levels of professionalism? You know, like, I try to never, ever play with music unless it's something like, for instance, Brad Gregory's thing, where it's actually written arrangements for three or four horns, but if it's just a small group thing, I will never play the music. Uh, I will learn yeah. whatever I need to learn, or I'll just play something else. Because like that's a ri- unwritten rule. It's like it's, uh, and it drives me crazy because a lot of musicians don't. That. But sorry, that's me being an old bastard. But you know, my my first jam session I did when I was in high school. I drove two and a half hours to Portland, Maine, from where I live, and I brought a real book up on stage and the old promonas who, who was a great mentor of mine uh, named Don Don. He took my real book, and he threw it across the table. like, get that. Uh, I, I'll, you bleep it out, right? Uh, he goes, get yeah. that shit off the stand. And I was like, okay. And then um, he goes, play a tune that you know. And I eventually called a tune that I knew. And he afterwards he was like, kid, that was great. Just remember, the real books are for the practice room, but when you get on stage, you don't play them. And and it was like, that was the first lesson I learned when I was 15 on a jam session. And it was, and that's intimidating. But you could take it two ways. You could be like, oh, I suck and I can't do it. Or you could be like, okay, this is the way to do it, and I need to keep doing it. A bit of an old bastard philosophy, but, you know, something I try to to do. I love improvisation, and it's not, and it doesn't, you know, I think, I don't necessarily, to be perfectly honest, I don't really like the word jazz and the connotations to early Upbringings of the musical nature of, you know, how our black music developed. I feel very privileged and an honored to play music from people like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. The people that proliferated music are heroes in my But But um, I love the following, the spontaneity it creates, the interactive qualities it can. It, it can present, both in good moments in music and in those moments where, oh, oh, oh. Like, for instance, when you came and saw us play in OT, we started a tune, and I know the tune, but I play, I've always played it in, a, in, a, in an uncommon key, and I wasn't listening well enough to hear that the, the rhythm section was playing in really the right key. So I started playing. I was like, oh, geez, they're in key. I'm like, within a m- measure, I moved away from the wrong key. But, but it was like one of those things that you have, to be, you have to be on your toes at all times when you're in a group performance because you just don't, you don't know what will happen. And you have to also be willing to, to, to be humble enough to get yourself outside of your own shell so you can experience those good moments. And that comes with, and that's the thing that over the pandemic, I've, I've really lost because I haven't played enough with other musicians. So, and this is the thing that I think a lot of us musicians who are fully coming back to the scene uh, post-pandemic uh, are experiencing, Like we've got, you know, a ton of chops going on. But there's always this line that the great, there's a great saxophone teacher at Berkeley named John Laporta. He said this to a drummer once in a rehearsal. The good thing is you got a lot of chops. The bad thing is you've got a lot of jobs. And um, <laughs> so part of what's happening, I think, at least for anybody who's, who has, like, dedicated themselves to practicing over the previous 16 months or so, is that, you know, all of a sudden we've got a lot more stuff under our, under our you know, fingers. And uh, so it's like, okay, bring it on. And then you get into a group and you're like, maybe I shouldn't do that. You know, that's where, like, the genius of Miles Davis came in. Miles went to Juilliard. So he's obviously an incredible technician of his instrument. Yet, when you listen to Miles Davis play, you never hear technique for technique's sake. Everything he played had the intention of what the music needed. And so that's like as as deep as you could ever dig into music. And that's something he instilled in all of his musicians, the future influencers, like guys like Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. and John Coltrane, that he was the, the proponent of that with uh, the Korea, and like yeah, you could just think of the who's who who plays with Miles. But yeah, that's those are the sort of levels that I would love to attain, but I'll never will. But that's the great thing about playing improvisational music that you have that ability to to create on the fly, to move on the fly, to be agile, to to, to be flexible enough that stuff throws you a curveball, you know hit it to right field and just be happy with a single instead of the home yeah. run. If you can get into a time machine, if the DeLorean, jazz DeLorean pulls up in front nice. of the house and we get off the phone and you could go anywhere you want, where were you going to go? Who are you going to go see live and the annals of jazz? And who would you want to talk to when they get off? Stage? I'm not even, I'm going, I'm not even going there. I'm going to go hang with Bach because there you go. You have to, you have to understand that, that Bach and Beethoven, especially Bach and Beethoven, not only are it, Probably the two greatest musical minds. That they're two of the greatest. They were great improvisers. Fox, harpsichord, uh, harpsichord cadenza and one of the Brandenburg Charities was literally him improvising and then writing down the law. He was doing that to show off the new purchase of the harpsichord for his church. So, and it and if you listen to that, you'll have to. Find, I can't remember if it's. Uh, oh, shame! I can't remember the exact number of the Brandenburg Um two or five, and you can listen to the Harpsichord cadenza, and it sounds like, I mean, it almost sounds like Eddie Van Halen's ready. I am not kidding you. Um, so it's just pure genius from 1700, right? Um, yeah. Beethoven was well known being an improvising musician. We can't see it, because what we what we have is the legacy of what they wrote, and obviously an incredible legacy. So that's where I would go first. I would, I would be hanging out with J.S. Bach, and like jamming on a modern trumpet versus what he had, what the pain that he inflicted on his old trumpet players um who didn't have the advent of piston valves and modern equipment. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah, those would be the two guys. If I, if you're talking about uh, post-1900, I would really like to hear Louis Armstrong in his prime. You know, I would love to stand in front of that bell in 1933 1934 uh i would love to hear i would love to experience the sound and the way the sound of john coltry's saxophone wrapped around you i'd love to watch Bird and see how his mind works i would love just to sit in a club and hear bill evans and see where his journey's with take. you know it's like those things you know of course definitely love to hear ellington's band around the same I mean I'm biased because I love Clark, but I would love to see that Ellington at Newport band and really experience like those eighteen choruses that Paul Gonzalez plays on uh the menuendo and pretendo and blue. You know those things. Oh yeah, man. I would love to be the fly on the wall in that. So what do you like the best about Kansas City? Oh man, there's so much delight. And, and 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 it's funny because it's like I went home and I, I went home to see my family and I thought I'd Honestly, you know, someone asked me this uh, at my gig on Saturday. A friend of ours came, and we were hanging after the gig, and he's like, so when you came back to Kansas City, was it like I just came back for home or I'm coming home? And I thought that was a hip question to ask. Uh, and I said, Kansas City's home. Um, and part of why it's home, and I'll tell you, it, it, the people like, when I moved here, the people like Stan Kessler, who literally – Welcome me with a hug. And that's not how it happens in Boston. And, and, and I think that's partly because East Coasters have, we have a, a rough and gruff mentality. We have to keep our eyes out for ourselves. But the Midwest people are like, they're very welcoming. Another friend and colleague, Mike Corgan, who owns BAC, a great musical company here in Kansas City, when, when I was thinking about moving here, I called him. And I thought he might be really pissed because I'm moving my shop, and we're competitors, even though we're really not. We're colleagues. Um, we do different things. And Mike was like, man, this is so great. You should check out this, this, this. And he was so welcoming. So uh, what I like about Kansas City, number one, without a doubt, are the people, everybody here. I, I, I have not played with a musician that I wouldn't want to play with again. And I cannot tell you that that didn't happen when I was in New York, and that didn't happen when I was in Boston. That's a compliment to everybody who is a musician in the scene. Everybody is just in. There's no traffic. And we we got out of the airport in Boston. It was 7 o'clock at night. And it was like we had to drive to a restaurant. It was like six miles away and it took 45. And I was like, I don't miss that. The cost of living here. You can be a musician and actually live in Kansas City. You cannot be a musician... And live. That's another reason I opened my business, and I, and I don't regret opening my business, I absolutely love and adore what I do, uh, even more than playing, you know, you couldn't live. And I was working, when I was gigging in Boston, I was playing five, six nights a week in the evening, and I was barely paying. my um, So, I can afford a house here, I can afford a decent quality of life, I mean, so that's, and it's a really cosmopolitan city, I mean, there's so much going on and great art museum, an incredible concert hall, good ballet, you know, like these things, you know, one of the best is, you know, the Truman Library, hopefully when it reopens again, people go to it because the renovations they did on this library are incredible. I mean, it's it's a, it's a great experience for one of the most important Americans who's ever lived. Um, so that's, so those are few things that I'm, there's great food, you know? You know, there's great, um, obviously, music scene, is, it's vibrant, it's, it's alive, it's happening, and big thing on the music thing, which I already mentioned, super positive, which, that is, it's a joy. Every day is a joy. So, very, very, right very Beautiful. So, everyone has a perception or an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans, your clients, your students. But ultimately, you live your life. Who do you think you are? I think I'm a trumpet geek. That's who I am. Uh, I mean, I don't even have to hesitate. So, I think I'm just trying to be, trying to be a happy person. And trying to, um, to be thankful for every day. And I think that also has changed, uh, to, be, to be 100% honest, since I've moved here. Um, you know, we all think when we're young, we want to be the best. I want to be the best musician in the world. And then you realize you're not the best. And then you also realize it's not a competition between you and, say, Winston Marsalis. It's a competition between you today and you tomorrow. Once you realize that, once you get over that fact, then that's where the true beauty of being an artist can be, where you can provide this different space as a a performer. And I I think that's another reason why I love doing my quote-unquote day job so when I perform, I perform in a different headspace than when I was working and gigging and playing. Even when I was gigging like, playing, like, yeah, okay, I'm going to play Carnegie Hall. And I'm not joking. It was, like, a weird sort of, like, you don't have, you have no idea how lucky you are. Now, when I'm playing, I'm like, I'm so thankful to be playing. Especially now. It can be 100% true, Joe. It's like, it's like, you know, we lived without being able to play. What a treat. I mean, the first time I played with five musicians post pandemic, I mean I was just awful. Was just I was I was a baby. I mean it was like, oh my God, I've missed it so much. And we hope that we can convey that same feeling of how much we appreciate it to the audience. Do we appreciate so much more now because we didn't get to see you first. So beautiful. Brent, that's a great way to wrap everything up. Hey, man, thank you for taking some time out. I really
0: appreciate oh, it.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for all you do. To proliferate such an incredible scene. You should really give yourself a pat on the back because it's people like you who, who make the scene the way it is. So, and that's not me just kissing your ass. I, I, I mean that in 100% sincerity.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Boston, Maine, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Trent for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
1: Neon Jazz.